This morning I'm going to be uh, preaching on 1 John chapter 1. Uh, the, the title is Walking in the Light. It's, it's kind of the theme of what John is addressing. Um, and as we get into that more, you know, you'll, you'll get a feel for what John is, is talking about and all. But um, to introduce it, I, I was thinking about light and lessons I've done in the past on light. Um, I was a youth pastor for years, and there was one, the first church that we were in, uh, we met in a, a larger room in the basement of our church. It only had a couple of, you know, the, the um, what are those windows called, the sunken in? You know what I mean. There were a couple small windows up in the, in the uh, towards the ceiling of the room. Um, so at night, if you turn the lights off, it was pitch black. You couldn't see a thing. And so I was teaching on Jesus when he said, you're the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And I was trying to kind of empower them as teens to go into their school and be the light for Christ in their, in their school. Um, and so what I did was turn the light off, and I talked about the world of darkness they live in, especially public school can be rough. Um, and so I talked about the world of darkness, you know, and how it takes just the smallest amount of light to shine into the darkness. And so I had my lighter, and in that dark room, I just kind of flicked the lighter, and that tiny flame was enough that you could see everybody's face in the room. You could see furniture. You could walk around. You really, I mean, you certainly, it wasn't like bright, but you could see all the main features of the room. And so I was teaching them, you know, you are the light in the darkness. And even though you're young, you're a kid, you know, you're, you're not looked very highly upon maybe by adults and other people, um, but you carry that light of Christ with you and you're able to bring that light into the dark world. And it went really well. It really impacted the kids. So a couple years later, you know, those kids kind of graduated out. I had a new group of kids. Uh, they were a little younger, mostly junior high. Turned the lights off. Said, you know, we live in a dark world. And I hear shuffling and giggling and crunching. And we flick the lights back on. And the kids are diving over furniture and beating on each other. <laughs> it was just a bad scene. It didn't go well. <laughs> uh, but I, I was able to redeem the lesson because nothing good happens in the dark. Right? That's kind of where I was going with it anyway. So I was able to redeem the lesson. It just didn't go quite as well. Uh, fast forward a few years, still in youth ministry, different church. Um, and we had this family that would always, you know, when you're driving down the road and the clouds break and the, the beams of sun come down, you can see kind of the pathway of the sun coming down. Well, they called them Jesus beams. And I thought that was kind of cute. So we'd be, you know, walking outside or somewhere. They go, look, Jesus beams. We've all seen it, right? Everybody here has seen the sun coming down that way. You've been maybe in your living room sitting and the sun comes through the window, right? And you just see it and you don't you have a moment where you're like, ah, right? Jesus beams. Well, tuck away the Jesus beams for just a minute. Um, John, who wrote First John, hence the name, uh, wrote God is light. And that's what we're going to kind of look at this morning. We're going to focus on that. Before, again, before we get too far along, uh, another question. Has anyone here watched the news in the past few weeks? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. Me too. Uh, so having watched the news, do you feel enlightened? Do you feel encouraged? Blessed by what you've seen? <laughs> do you find hope when you're watching the news? No. Probably most of us, we watch for eh, seven to eight seconds and we're wondering, what happened to our country? Right? There's so much polarization. There's so much division, so much animosity. We can't even disagree on things and have a civil conversation about it. There's just kind of snarky comments left and right. One of the things that's been most amazing to me over the past year, you know, COVID has kind of compressed everything that has already been going on in our country, but, you know, the racism and, and uh, economic issues and all of that's just been kind of compressed by the restrictions put on us by COVID and, and 
you know, the lines that government puts on us and all of that. It's compressed it. And one thing that's been fascinating to me is how many people I've heard say, this is bigger than just politics. It's bigger than our country. This is good versus evil. This is God versus Satan. It's right versus wrong. And what's really kind of uh, captured my fascination is not so much what people are saying. It's that people on the far right politically, the diehard Trump supporters, are saying this is good versus evil. This is God versus Satan. But people on the far left, diehard Biden supporters, are saying this is good versus evil. This is God versus Satan, right versus wrong. And so it's fascinating to me that people with such diverse thinking can agree on something so fundamentally and yet mean completely different things. And so it just raises the question, how have we gotten here as a country? What does this mean for us? I want to make clear, too, um, you know, maybe some of you here in this church have made those comments that this is good versus evil, God versus Satan. I'm not criticizing that by any stretch. I'm not disagreeing with it even. What I want to do is just kind of pull back and, and kind of look at that question, how did we get here? How did our country get here? And I believe at least part of that answer lies in the letter of 1 John. Uh, 1 John uh, was a letter. I just kind of blew that surprise, I guess. Uh, It was written during a time of doctrinal and ecclesial unification. Um, So we had the ministry of Christ, right? Christ came from heaven to earth. For about three years, he had his ministry. He picked his disciples. Uh, He established what Christianity was going to be. It kind of laid the foundation. And then he ascended into heaven and left the church behind to the apostles to lead. So the apostles began to spread the gospel around the world, right? And they were the authorities of the church. So as the church grew, questions would arise. You know, how do we do do church, right? We kind of take it for granted now that we know what church is, but they didn't know what church was. How do we do this? How do, you know, mostly Jewish people who now feel that they have found the Messiah, what does this church thing mean? How do we do it? And they would look to the apostles. The apostles had direct contact with Jesus. They learned directly from him. And so they were the authority in the church. But as time went on, the apostles began to die, and there was kind of a vacuum of leadership. And the church started questioning, well, where is the authority now? Who do we look to for leadership? Where do we get these answers from? And so a lot of these letters began to circulate uh, towards the end of the apostles' lives. As these questions were being addressed, they would write letters specific to churches or specific to issues to try to kind of iron out these details to lay the foundation again for the continuation of the church. There were three things going on uh, during the time John was written. One is organized persecution against the church. And the letter to John isn't specifically addressing persecution, but it was happening at that time. First Peter is a good example of a letter written to address uh, persecution. Heresy was infiltrating the church. So again, the farther the church got from the physical presence of Christ, the more questions arose, the more ideas began to circulate. And so heresy began to be Uh, come into the church, and they had to address that. And then the third thing, again, is that crisis of leadership. As the apostles began to die, the question was, well, who's going to answer these questions for us? How do we find clarity? So John's letter was part of the process of kind of addressing these issues and ironing out these questions. Um, We think, uh, in in our modern time, we think very linear. Uh, So one thing you'll see if you read through the the full book of 1 John, is that the whole thing is kind of a letter. Um, If you read the whole thing, you'll see that whereas we, if we sit down to do like a research paper or a letter or something, we we kind of name the topic we're going to address, and we kind of try to lay out a logical argument or progression of thought, right? 
and it's linear. Well, in the Jewish mind, they tend to think very circular. So in the book of John, you'll see topics kind of pop up repeatedly over and over and over. Um, the topics that you'll see are sin, love, and Christology. Christology is a fancy way of saying, what do we believe about Jesus? And so those three topics begin to, to cycle through his letter. Um, and the main idea uh, that John is trying to get across is that God sent his son into history, into our world, to die the atoning death that cleanses sin and restores fellowship to God. And so he's getting at the heart of the gospel. What does it mean that Jesus came to earth for us? Um, now, in, in the ancient times, there were letters cycling you know, all over the place, personal letters, business letters, just similar to what we have. Um, and one thing that typically happened is, especially with these letters to the church, is they would be read publicly. Um, so you know, if you were writing a letter to your wife, you would probably be very selective about what you're saying because there was no internet, there was no TV, there was nothing, you know, they didn't really have books even. So they would read letters. That was part of kind of the culture. So if you wrote a letter even to your wife, it would probably be read to the family. So you got to, you know, keep that under wraps. So as we consider 1 John, as we look into it, we're going to look at chapter 1 this morning. Um, but I would just encourage you, you know, on your own time to read through the whole book. If you sit down, it's, it's a shorter book. It's not going to take you hours and hours and hours. But to get kind of the, the real feeling of what John is trying to communicate, if you can, sit down and read the whole thing all at once. And this is what would have been done uh, to the early church. John would have written it to uh, a church or an, a community of churches, delivered it to one person, and it would have been read to those churches. Um, so what I want to do is I'm going to open us in prayer, and then I'm going to read the first chapter of John, and we'll begin to address some of these issues uh, that I brought up. Would you, would you just join me in prayer to start off? Father God, we thank you uh, for the blessing it is to have your word so readily accessible to us. Um, Lord, we pray this morning as we look into the letter of 1 John uh, that your Holy Spirit would move, that you would teach each and every one of us something new about yourself. Help us to get to know you better, more intimately, on in a deeper level. Teach us about ourselves. Teach us about our relationship to you. And God, we just pray that everything that comes of this morning would be to your glory, to lift Jesus up. We thank you for uh, allowing us to gather, especially with all the issues that our country is facing now. We're blessed to be able to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ and to reflect on your word together. So we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read uh, 1 John chapter 1. If you look in your sermon notes, if you want to follow along, the chapter is in there. Uh, but again, as we, as we uh, you know, it's, sometimes we, we look at different verses and even just sentences and we kind of lose sight of the bigger picture. So We'll kind of get a flow for where John is going with his letter by reading this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, 
and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we do not if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. What we're going to do this morning is focus on kind of the second half of that uh, chapter. Uh, but just to quickly address the first half, it's noteworthy to address the fact that John is writing this as an eyewitness of Jesus. And so when we think about the apostles' authority, you know, that they were looked at by the church to be the authority on, on what Christianity was going to become, it was because they were direct witnesses to what Jesus said and what Jesus did. They interacted with him. It's an amazing thing to, uh, to think about. And what John is saying in those first four verses is that we were there, we saw it, we heard it, we touched him, we ate with him. And because of that, because of that experience that he had with Jesus, that kind of sense of his presence and joy overwhelmed, overflowed out of him. And for that reason, he says, make my joy complete. He wanted to share this Jesus guy with everyone he came in contact with because he had such an amazing experience and it brought him such joy. He wanted to share that with everyone. He wanted everyone to experience Jesus the way he had. Now in uh, verse 5, John makes the statement that becomes kind of the heading and the foundation for the rest of the letter. He says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So if you're following along in your notes, uh, G John here presents the duality of light versus darkness. And that theme carries through the letter. Uh, that statement in verse 5 is followed by five different clauses that we're going to take a quick look at. Um, if you're following in your notes, if you look at verse 6 and, and down through, you're going to see five ifs. And if you want to circle them, it'll just kind of highlight it for you. I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to go off on a rabbit trail. When I was younger, my youth pastor used to, his church, you know, he moved for a while. We went to visit him. His church had these sermon notes, and he used to sit down and fill it out and see how many he got right. So you, you use those as you see fit. <laughs> so there's five clauses, five ifs. And as we read them, we'll notice that the first two form a contrasting pair. The second two also form a contrasting pair. And then the fifth serves as kind of a summary statement. So I want to just read that section again real quick, and I'll, I'll emphasize the ifs so you can see the, the different contrasts that he's presenting. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if, there's the contrast, we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, the contrast. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then verse 10, that final summary. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So here again, John's presenting this duality between light and dark. And when we think about light, First uh, John makes a lot of references back to the Gospel of John. You'll see a lot of similarity in the language and the writing. And John, 1 John and John 
refer often back to Genesis. So there's kind of a, a common flow of themes in those three writings. Uh, but light back in Genesis and creation is the first fundamental element of the universe that God created. Let there be light. And it's specified that it was to separate light from darkness. Light allows and sustains life. Light makes life more pleasant. It makes life safer. It reveals what is hidden. So again, in that room when I turned the lights out and those junior high kids went berserk, they were able to do that because it was hidden in the dark. But light brings things to light, if you will. It reveals what's hidden. Light and darkness cannot physically coexist in the same space. So if you have a dark room and you light a candle, the light's going to permeate the darkness. Darkness can't overcome that light. So John uses uh, this metaphor of light and dark to reflect on righteousness and sin and what it means to dwell in righteousness and to consider our own sinfulness. Life results when true light comes into the world. This is how John introduces Jesus coming into the world. That if you want to experience true life, you have to experience Jesus, the light of the world. And the key to understanding all of what he's talking about here is that God himself defines the moral standard for human life. God gets to decide what's right and what's wrong. And God himself defines what's right and what's wrong. And so with this metaphor of light, uh, the natural contrast to that is that anything that's not of God is darkness. In verse 6, again, if you're following in your notes, it says, If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Now, walk in Hebrew thinking, and again, you know, early church, early Christianity was largely Jewish because it was, you know, Jesus was the Messiah of the Jewish faith. So most of the early believers were Jewish. And then as the church grew, you know, they began to have uh, pagans and, and people from different um, religious thinking, if you will. So polytheistic cultures that had all different gods and goddesses, if they put their faith in Jesus, they were Christians, they were saved and everything, but oftentimes they would bring some of the baggage of their belief behind and they had to be clarified. Um, but largely it was Jewish thinking. So when it says that, uh, when John talks about walking, uh, he's talking about how we live and how we behave. So it's obviously, when he says walk in the light, he's obviously not talking about going outside into the sun. He's saying when you live the way you behave, your conduct if you're going to walk in the light, you have to walk according to God's standard. Because again, God is the one that defines right and wrong. When we walk in a way that conforms to God's moral standards, uh, we are honoring him and his authority to make those definitions. And God himself defines morality, what's right and what's wrong, uh, and reveals it to us largely through scripture. Because God himself is the light. And it's important for us to kind of pause and, and consider uh, how important it is for us to be in the scriptures on a regular basis. Because we can, you know, uh, Ecclesiastes 3 says God put eternity on our heart. Romans 1, Paul says that creation itself is enough that you will know there's a God. But that doesn't tell us what right and wrong is per se. It just allows us to see, okay, there's something bigger to life than just what we're experiencing right now. But the scriptures are where God wrote his letter to us. This is who I am. This is who you are. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. This is how I designed the world to operate. 
So it's important for us to be in the scriptures on a regular basis so that we can learn about God, be introduced to God, introduced to his character. Again, how he defines right and wrong and how do we conform ourselves to that standard. So according to John, to walk in darkness is to live and behave in a way that violates God's standards. To do this is to reject God's authority to define those standards. It's us hearing what God says is right and wrong and deciding, well, that's a pretty good idea, but I think. And so we're rejecting his authority and we're taking over, attempting to take over that authority to define what's right and wrong. And that problem isn't unique to us. That problem goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Right? I, I always, it, I know it's not funny, original sin and all, but Adam and Eve, the story of Adam and Eve as a parent, I think is kind of chuckle-worthy because God says to Adam and Eve, you have the whole world. There's two people on the world. You have the whole world. You can eat from any tree in the garden. Anything around you is yours for food. Just don't touch this one tree. And while he's saying, don't touch the one tree, they're going, what, this one? <laughs> and so as far back as, as Adam and Eve, the first two adults, adult humans, we decided, you know, you have some good ideas there, God, but that fruit looks pretty good. I think I'm going to go ahead and give it a try. But as John is addressing truth, Truth is not a doctrine to be believed or an intellectual idea. And that's something that we have to wrestle with in, in our modern culture, is that we have kind of competing philosophies and things that we're, we're trying to figure out where does Christianity fit in with Hinduism and Islam and uh, humanism and all these different things. And so we're comparing philosophies. And what John is saying is that truth is not just an intellectual idea. Truth is something that must be done. You don't just understand truth, you do it. You have to live it out. Living by God's definition of truth, as John is saying, is to walk in the light. Lies and self-defeat, excuse me, self-deceit are to walk in the darkness. And when we do that, we're walking apart from God. We're separating ourselves from God. Truth is not just facts. Truth is the significance of the facts and what those facts entail. Truth reveals, excuse me, refers to what has been revealed about God and about mankind through the coming of Jesus. So Jesus himself in John 14 says, I am the truth. He said, I am the measure of truth. The incarnation of Jesus, that Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us, creates a reality against which all other claims of truth must be measured. So if you want to hear somebody say, well, this is what I think, you have to measure that against Jesus, what he taught, what he did, what he said, how he treated other people. He is the measure of truth. We need to hear this. To embrace the truth of the gospel is not merely intellectual assent to a list of Christian doctrines. And for too long, that's how the church was living. That if we believed this, this certain block of ideas, then we were okay. But what John is saying is you need to live that truth out. The truth of the gospel is to be embodied and lived out in the lives of Christian believers.
a central aspect of what Christ has revealed is that all human beings apart from Christ are sinners, that they're alienated from the living, the life-giving fellowship with God that only Christ can provide. So to walk in truth requires being cleansed from our sin and being restored in fellowship to God through Christ. In verse 7, John writes, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. I want to read that one more time. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. Sin requires purification through the blood of Jesus through his death. Our sin is like stains on us that you can't get off. You can rub and rub and rub and rub. Use all kinds of soap and water, but it's stained. And the only thing that can get rid of that stain is the blood of Christ. And so the heart of the gospel, as John points it out, is atonement for sin. It's not ideas. It's not theology. It's not uh, concepts. It's atonement for sin that we were in the darkness, that we were defiled by our own sinfulness, and that Jesus stepped into our world to die for those sins, to cover our sins with his blood. And so again, to walk in the light means to be cleansed from our sin and to be in fellowship with God. And, John points out, fellowship with God is closely associated with fellowship with one another. If we are uh, living with uncleansed sin, if we're continuing in sin, if we're stuck in some kind of sin cycle, that means that our fellowship with God is broken, but also our fellowship with other believers is broken. It's affected. So in verse 9, John begins to address uh, how we rightly deal with the problem of sin in our lives. How do we do it? So we're understanding, okay, we have a sin issue, we're walking in darkness uh, where our fellowship with God is broken, our fellowship with other believers is broken. How do we deal with that? And the answer John gives is confession. So chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that idea of confession means that we are now agreeing with God about what we have done and that how we have lived our lives is not in alignment with God's standard. We have violated God's will. We have violated God's standard. Confession is agreeing with God about what's right and what's wrong. And confession leads us to forgiveness and that purification because of the death of Jesus. In verse 1-9, it says that God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. So we might question, how is God faithful and just? And the answer is that it refers back to the standard of the covenant that God made with his people. He made a covenant that his son's blood would be sufficient to deal with the sins, to atone for the sins of all mankind. And so because of this promise, if God were to look out at, at all mankind and, and all those who confess their sin, he looks at that crowd and he says, yep, you're good, you're good, you're good. Eh, nope, nope, yep, oh, no, no. He wouldn't be truthful to what he said, to that promise that he made. But John makes it clear that if we confess our sins, 
on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection, he is faithful to that promise. And he will forgive us and cleanse us. So there is no one, this may be hard for some to believe, there is no one beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. Not one person. I always kind of laugh. My, my grandfather, uh, we used to joke he was like the Archie Bunker of our family. Um, very much not a church-going guy. But when I uh, became a pastor and I was preaching one day, he said he was going to come hear me preach, which was shocking to everyone who knew him. And I'll never forget being in the front of the, um, the uh, sanctuary, talking to the pastor. And in the back, there were two doors that opened up, just, I mean, like pushed open both doors and in stepped my grandfather, and he went like this. <laughs> but he made it. <laughs> because there is no one beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. And if he were to reject some, again, he would be unjust and unfaithful himself. In chapter, excuse me, verse 10, John writes, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So if we deny being sinners ourselves, we are calling God a liar. How? How are we calling him a liar? Because God sent Jesus to our world specifically to die for our sin. And so if we turn around and say, thanks very much, but I don't have a problem, then we're calling God a liar. We're trying to claim that we don't need his son that he put to death on our behalf. Verses 6 through 10, uh, John's concern is how do we deal with sin, right? That idea of confession. The heart of all that is don't deny it. Don't deny the fact that we are sinners. And there are so many ways that we can do that in our lives. It, it's not just a denial of like, did you do this? No. It's this idea of rationalizing what we've done, rationalizing our sinfulness. Don't deny your sinfulness. Don't rationalize your sinfulness. Don't excuse your sinfulness. Don't justify your sinfulness. Don't come up with reasons why your sin was okay. And that's so easy for us to do. But we need to agree with God that we are sinners. And that's why he sent Jesus. Confess what in your life has violated God's standard. And the hard part, I think, for many of us is this. If I say to most Christians, are you a sinner? What's your answer? Yes. How? Huh? We're okay saying we're sinners. It's the details we don't like to bring up. Most of us, I think, deep down, we will theologically and intellectually acknowledge, yes, I'm a sinner because otherwise Jesus wouldn't have come. But we don't like to get into the dirt and the mess. We don't like to acknowledge exactly why we're sinners, exactly what we do wrong. But all of the sins that we commit originate in that rejection of God's authority to define our moral lives and the reality in which we live. Anytime we think we know better than God. We are denying his authority, rejecting his authority. And I think this gets to the heart of how our nation has become so polarized. 
how we can watch the news and hear people talking and come from such different perspectives and believe that they are right in this scenario when they are so polar opposite to other people saying the exact same thing. I really think John begins to address this because in our culture, there is no sense of absolute truth. There's no sense of absolute morality, that all morality is culturally constructed. So how often have you heard just in, in your daily lives or interacting with people, you know, as long as I'm not hurting someone else, it's okay. That's become morality for people. But even what hurts other people, there's no agreement on that. And if that's true, that creates a tremendous amount of division because everyone experiences life very differently. So some of the, the most uh, in-our-face in examples of this that I could think of are uh, rich people and poor people versus middle-class people. Each one of those living arrangements is, is going to bring a different perspective on life and right and wrong and how things, you know, how you go about life. Um, black versus white versus Hispanic. Men versus women. You may have noticed that men and women are a little different. <laughs> because I'm a man. <laughs> this would lead right into the next one. Educated and not educated. <laughs> Blue collar versus white collar. There are, when we think about just our country alone, there are almost an infinite number of combinations of differences that we have that will mean we experience life differently. And so if our experience is where we get our sense of what's right and what's wrong, we're going to have almost an infinite number of definitions of right and wrong. And so again, John's claim is that God is the only source of truth and the only one who can define what's right and what's wrong. And I want to warn you this morning, I'm warning myself as well, in the church we tend to hear statements like that and we think, amen. But do not fall into the trap of thinking, this doesn't affect you. Because it does. When I was in college, we used to have this silly little thing that we would say, does a fish know he's wet? And it was supposed to be this deep philosophical question, right? But if you think about it, a fish lives in water, does he know he's in water? Does he know he's wet? Does he, because he's, that's, that's all he knows until you take him out. Well, we're kind of like fish who live in a culture, in a society that believes a certain way, and we can see elements of it that we disagree with, but very often we're so immersed in it, we, we don't even recognize in ourselves what's going on. So it's important for us to understand that this line of thinking, this way of defining right and wrong, even though we might intellectually understand it's not correct, very often we live out a different standard. We live out right and wrong according to our own definition. Back to the Jesus beams. I want you to imagine you're sitting on your couch in your living room, and through the window come some Jesus beams, right? And you have that moment, ah, oh, that's heartwarming. And, and as you're looking at those beams of light, what else do you see? Dust. Flying everywhere, right? And you start to wonder, how am I breathing right now? Because there's so much junk flying around here, right? Well, now you've lost your ah moment, and you see the dust, and then you're looking where that light is pointing on the coffee table. What's on there? Dust. dust. You're lucky if it's just dust. <laughs> you, you, you realize how much smudge is on your table, 
right? And then you're, you're getting angry at the sunbeam, so you look at it again and follow it to the window. I had, I mean, we have two boys in the house now, but two is enough. And a dog, there's, there's snot all over the window and peanut butter and jelly, right? Suddenly this Jesus beam that a minute ago had us going, ah, now we're like, yeah. <laughs> Why? Because light highlights what's been hidden. The light brings to light things that we didn't see, probably because we didn't want to see. The problem with light is that it exposes things that might otherwise never be exposed in our lives. What is John saying? Fellowship with God, walking in the light, is not passive. Fellowship with God, walking in the light, is not uh, what I call a one-and-done scenario where we hear a preacher talk about hell and it doesn't sound too pleasant, but this Jesus guy will get us a, a get-out-of-hell-free card. So we accept Jesus and then we're good to go, right? But the reality is we need to live out our faith. We need to continually understand what's truth, to see in ourselves, oof, I, I haven't been living up to God's standard, and confess it. And by confessing again, we're agreeing, God, I am giving you the authority to define what's right and wrong because you seem to be much better at it than I am. When we walk in the light, when we walk with God, we have to respond to the dusty corners of our own lives that the light reveals, to the mess that is in our lives. We have to respond to the snot that we're trying to pretend is not there the peanut butter and jelly that's smeared on our faces. The light will expose the reality of who we are. And we have two choices. We can take what we see and shove it back down into the darkness, or we can allow God to bring it into the light. And what John is saying is when you bring it into the light, Jesus' blood will purify it. You will be forgiven. One of the great ironies of our faith is that we, we have this perfect God that we want to please, and we know that we have sin and we have mess in our lives. And so we want God to love us, so we push it down and we try to hide it from God. And the whole time God is saying, dude, I know it's there. Just bring it out. Why did I send my son to you? Because I love you. And yet we try to hide it from God. In your notes, you'll see Theology 101. I had a college professor years ago define Theology 101 for me. I thought it was brilliant, and then I've heard multiple people after, so now I'm not so sure he was that smart. But The thing he said was very smart. Theology 101 is this. God is God, and I am not. God is God, and I am not. So God created everything. We talked before about how creation itself speaks of God. And God created everything we know to work a certain way. God created the spiritual world, the spiritual laws, in the same way. He created us to function a certain way. And when we live according to God's laws, things function properly. If we reject those laws, it's the same as rejecting physical laws. So I, I always talk about, I used to be a rock climber 100 years ago before this. Uh, I used to be a rock climber, um, and I would go up, my friend and I would go up to the top of a cliff and set all our ropes up to a tree or whatever, and then we would rappel down because it was faster than walking around. And I'll never forget the first time we went 
rock climbing outdoors. We knew our knots. We knew, I mean, we had practiced everything. We knew what we were doing. We were very confident in it. And so we found a big, solid, firmly rooted tree at the top of the cliff, and we hooked all our stuff up to it. And I was going to be the first one to rappel down. And, you know, I hooked my stuff up, got my harness on, turned around, got to the edge of the cliff. And I decided we should check those again. <laughs> God established the physical world to function a certain way. And we can get to the edge of the cliff, and we can take a step out, and we can say, I don't, I defy you, gravity. But who's going to win that argument? Well, God created spiritual laws in the same way. We can defy God. We can decide, I don't agree with this. I don't think you're right. But the same thing is going to happen. God, dis, God created things to work a certain way, and they will work according to that certain way, whether we like it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not. So our role as a creature of God, as a created person, is to bend our will to God's will and to walk in the light as he has defined it, not as we want to define it. And then we live with the moral consequences of our decision. So if we decide to follow God's way, things will go well. If we decide we know better, we're going to live with the consequences of those decisions as well. It's only by recognizing God's sovereign right over all human beings that we can truly know God, that we can truly accept Christ, and that we can truly mature spiritually and grow in our spiritual walk. The atonement achieved in, in Jesus' death is essential to walking in fellowship with God. So again, if you want to walk with God, if you want to know God and be favored by God, you have to understand what it means to walk in the light and then not just acknowledge the truth, but to live it. There's a profound contradiction that we've been facing as a church in America for years between professing to be a Christian on one hand and denying our sin on the other. We profess to be a Christian, and again, we might not say, no, I'm not a sinner, we might acknowledge, I am a sinner, but we live our lives as if we're not. We don't acknowledge specific sins. We don't confess those sins. Another warning for, for this church, do not fall into this trap of professing to be a Christian and denying your sinfulness. What are some red flags for that? Uh, if you're glad this morning that others are hearing this, it may be you. If you're glad this morning that you're doing okay, take a little caution. Take a step back. Some very smart guy with a very hard-to-pronounce name. I'm going to try. Does anyone know how to speak Swedish? No? That O with the two dots over it? I think that's an umlaut. Is that an umlaut? Did you know how to say it? You're no help. <laughs> okay. I'm going to Yeah, okay. So maybe he's German. He he Anyway, I'm going to I'm going to decide it's Swedish right now. And I'm going to give it my best Swedish uh, accent, ready? Andreas Kirstenberger. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> when I've had 
people do scripture readings in the past and you do in the Old Testament and you get to some really hard name. People get nervous. They break into cold sweats. And I always say, here's what you do. Decide how you're going to say it. Say it with confidence and move on. Because the people who know how to say it are going to respect you for trying. The people who don't aren't going to know the difference. <laughs> Therefore, this quote from Andreas Kustenberger, he says, Hence, it is not the claim of sinlessness that carries the day, but the humble confession of the need for the cleansing blood of Christ that enables believers to continue walking in the light and thus to enjoy fellowship both with Jesus and fellow believers. I want to read that one more time. Hence, it is not the claim of sinlessness. It's not the perfection. that So many Christians think they have to be seen a certain way, to live a certain way, to project themselves a certain way in order to be respected, to be understood as a mature Christian. It's not the claim of sinlessness that carries the day, but the humble confession of the need for the cleansing blood of Christ that enables believers to continue walking in the light and thus to enjoy fellowship both with Jesus and with fellow believers. We do not hear the word sin very often outside of the church. Am I right? Unfortunately, we do not hear the word sin very often inside the church either. Because we're the fish in the bowl. Culture has impacted us more than we're willing to acknowledge. Too often we see the sin in others, but we deny our own sin. We're quick to call other people out and to, to bring holy correction to them. But we fail to see our own stuff. Too often we attribute sin to bad parenting, to genetics, to lack of education, to entitlement. But it's really the entitlement to define moral principles for ourselves. Again, the thinking that we know better than God. You gave it a good try, God, but I'm going to show you what's really right and wrong. Society around us no longer believes in absolute truth. They no longer believe in the moral or spiritual world. And many of them see claims to know that, to know the truth of God. The culture around us sees those claims to know that truth as wrongful and an arrogant assertion of power. So when we try to tell the world around us what's right and what's wrong, they see it as us trying to assert ourselves, our power over them, to control them, to dominate them, to make them live according to our standard. Because they don't understand that standard is set by God. Collectively, humankind has said, we have not sinned. And according to John, that is the most fundamental sin. It's denying the very purpose for God sending Jesus here. Now, church, it's easy for us, again, to look outside as we hear these things, as we consider what's true and are we living according to God's truth. It's easy for us to look outside and to see the way our neighbors are failing, to look outside of our church, this church here, to look down the road and see how people are living and to see that as the problem. And praise God, we know the truth, right? It's much more difficult to look in ourselves and to see the way that we have fallen short of God's standard, that we have 
denied God's standard and denied his authority again to decide what's right and what's wrong. The things that John's talking about, the things that I'm talking about now, are not a modern problem. They're not an American problem. They're not a them problem. They are a human problem. They are a you problem. And they're a me problem. And we need to acknowledge it. The solution, again, is not for us to, to give a hearty amen and say, see, that's what I've been talking about the whole time. I've been saying this for years. There's no sense of moral truth out there. And we fall into that trap of out there. But the solution that John is offering us is to look inward. The solution John is presenting is for us who think we're okay, who think we're living according to God's standard, to walk in the light, to walk with God. One of my favorite passages in the scripture is Isaiah 6. Now, Isaiah the prophet, he's got his own book in the Bible, so he's got to be doing okay in some measure, right? But in Isaiah 6, he comes before God's presence, and this holy man, this prophet of God, does what? Falls flat on his face and is terrified of God because he comes before God's holiness. When we walk in the light, when we have fellowship with God, it's going to reveal dirt in us, mess, sin. And we have to act on what's revealed. And that action begins with confession. Confess the dusty corners of your life. Confess the fingerprints that are on your faith. Confess the grime, the mess, and walk in the light. Walk in fellowship with God and walk in fellowship with one another. And the things we're trying to hide, that stuff that we don't want, I don't want you all to know what's in my dark pockets. And so I stuff it down and I keep it hidden. And what's funny is if, if you bring it into the light, it doesn't control you anymore. Because if I have some issue, say I have a, a potty mouth, right? And, and I confess it and I bring it into the light and I'm working on it. And you come to me and say, well, you curse all the time. And I say, yes, I do. Because <laughs> it's in the light. We don't have to hide it anymore. We don't have to pretend anymore. Our fellowship with God is restored. Our fellowship with other believers is restored. Because when I say to Mike, dude, I got a problem with my potty mouth. And he says, yes, sir, you do. And we pray together. And we walk through it together. And every once in a while I let it fly and he gives me a little look. And I don't even have to hear it from him. I go, my bad. I'm walking in fellowship. I grow closer to him. I grow closer to the body. Because I'm trying my best to walk in the light with Jesus just like you. We've been here just, this is our second day here. right? And in that time we've heard your heart in some measure for the city of Wilkes-Barre. And what I want to point out, uh, as, as you're considering the future of this church, whether it be with me or someone else, whether you're considering what role this church will play in our city, right? as you look around the city and you love the city and you want to see revival in the city, I would just say to you, revival does not start out there. Don't look at the problems. Don't look at the people who don't know Jesus and hope that there will be revival out there. Scripturally, revival starts right here. 
Revival starts right here. Walk in the light. We very often quote 2 Chronicles 7.14. I'm going to read it again. Um, and you've probably heard it said this way before. But when we pray for revival, we always think if the church comes together and prays for the city, the city will come to faith. But consider what 2 Chronicles says here. If my people, that's us, not them. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, not humble the people outside, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, the confession that John is talking about, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin. As John said, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And I will heal their land. It's easy for us to look at what's wrong with our country and all the problems going on out there, the polarization, the division, and say, if they would only do this, and if they would only do that, and if they this and they that, and we don't know how to fix it. And what John is saying is, dude, start with yourself. Revival begins right here. As John opened his book, as an eyewitness, we've walked with Jesus, we've seen Jesus, we've experienced Jesus. The key to revival in this city is going to be in this room. When we walk in the light, when we experience Jesus, not just come to church and believe and have a good time and, and share fellowship, but when we experience Jesus, when we walk in the light and all that garbage that's exposed and we bring it up and we confess it and we find that God isn't ashamed of us or mad at us, he loves us. He's not going to say, oh, you're out. He's going to say, finally. And he'll embrace us. And we experience Jesus in such a way that that joy that we feel overflows. And the people we interact with, we don't need to have perfect theology or a perfect plan of salvation down and know how to lead them in the prayer. We just know what we experience through Jesus. And it's overflowing us in such a way that we just bleh. Then there will be revival. Then the revival in here will pour out into the city around us. I want to, Rebecca, I'm going to take you up on your offer if you don't mind. I'm going to ask them to sing Man of Sorrows again. Um, and I would just encourage you, maybe just sit quietly. I was going to have you kind of pair up if you, if you wanted to. If the Holy Spirit leads you to confess to someone else, you know, by all means, I'm not going to tell the Holy Spirit what to do. I've listened to my own sermon. Just sit quietly. Sing along if you want. Just listen. But have a time of prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal in you the mess. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal in you sin that you've been pretending like you don't have. Hurts that you haven't dealt with. Things that you need to acknowledge or in your dark places. And as you're singing or as you're, you're reflecting and meditating, confess those to God this morning. Bring them into the light. Allow Jesus' blood to cleanse you, to purify you from all your sins. And then rejoin the fellowship with God. Rejoin the fellowship with one another. I think what I'll do, this was not in my script, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just have them sing. Again, meditate, sing along. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you. 
confess. If you want to speak to someone, just quietly go aside and confess to them or share with them what's going on. And then I'll close us in prayer in a couple minutes. I'm going to pray for us in just a minute. Um, I just want to encourage you. First of all, uh, Sarah and I, you know, you don't know us that well. We have we have some mess. We've had some dusty corners. We've lived through some hurts. Um, and, and particularly with the hurts, if you've been uh, abused in the past or, or you've had any kind of trauma in your past at all, there's a hurt there. There's scars in your soul that you don't you don't like that pain. And one of the things we do is we try to push that into the dark places and pretend like it's not there. And Sarah and I have both done it. But the reality is that the pain never goes away. It continues to bubble up and we push it back down. And it bubbles up and we push it back down. And so as we're talking about sin and confessing sin, I would like to just put hurt in that as well. If there's hurts you've experienced, traumas you've experienced, and you don't want to live that pain again, I understand. But the only way to find healing is to bring that into the light as well. Another thing is, as we close, it's, it's easier for us to meditate on a song and bow our heads and pray and confess to God. But a lot of times these sins that we're dealing with that, that keep recurring, when we confess them to God, that's great, but there's no accountability. And we're not looking at Him face to face. So I would encourage you, again, maybe not today or when, when you're comfortable, find someone you trust, another believer that you trust, and confess it to them. And, and just like the pain, we don't like to do that because we're acknowledging that we messed up. We're not perfect. and It's embarrassing. We feel shame and guilt. But when we do that, we're bringing it into the light, not just with God, but with another believer who is going to give you that, I mean, COVID embrace, whatever that looks like, and be the tangible face of Jesus saying, you're forgiven. His word says you are forgiven. Let me walk with you through this to help you find healing. So as you confess, don't just confess to the Lord. That's a key part, obviously. Confess to someone else. And that restores the fellowship with believers as well. What the Holy Spirit reveals to you, don't push it back into the dark. Bring it out to the light. Let's pray together. Father God, I just ask for your spirit to move among us not just now, not just in the next hours, but in the week ahead. Whatever you brought to mind, whatever you brought to the light, I pray for each one of us that you would give us the courage to acknowledge it, the courage to submit to your authority in defining it as, as wrong, and the courage to bring it in the light and walk with you, to confess it to you, to find someone we trust to confess it to them as well. God, help us to find healing. Help us to find forgiveness and freedom in that. God, if people come to us to confess, I pray that you would give us your heart of compassion and mercy and forgiveness to encourage them, to build them up, to help them find freedom and healing. And in that, God, may we, may we find a deeper fellowship with you, a deeper sense of your presence, not just one-on-one, -on -one, but as a church body as your church body. We thank you for sending Jesus to do all this for us. We thank you that while we were your enemies, you sent Jesus. 
to die for our sins and to bring us into a restored relationship with you. We thank you. We praise you. We glorify you today in Jesus' name. Amen.